0: Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm really excited to welcome Geraldine Gutifen and Kirsten Fromaglich to the podcast today to talk about Kirsten's book, *A Rosenberg by Any Other Name: A History of Jewish Name Changing in America*. Geraldine Gutifen is a scholar of modern Jewish studies, currently teaching at American University. She received her PhD in history from Brandeis University in 2018. And her research is focused on migration, gender, and the intersection of law and religion in French and American Jewish history. And we're also joined, of course, by Kirsten Fermaglich, who's an associate professor at Michigan State University's Department of History. Her book, A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, which we're going to talk about today, explores the history of name-changing in the U.S. in the 20th century. And her first book, American Dreams and Nazi Nightmares, Looked at secular Jewish intellectuals' use of the Holocaust in the early 1960s.
1: Thanks, Jason. I'm Geraldine. I'm very excited to talk with Kirsten today about her book on Jewish name changing in the United States. I was really fascinated uh, to read Kirsten's book because it deals with so many different themes. And one theme that really stood out is the question of the types of economic and social anti Semitism that Jews faced in the 20th century. And this is a story that. Has been obscured both in how American Jews tell their own story and how they relate to name changing itself. But it's also a topic that has been obscured largely in the historiography of American Jews. And so a lot of the discussion with Kirsten really centered on the question of how everyday life of Jews in America was uh, shaped by anti Semitism and how American Jews tell their own story in their recounting of how Jews changed their names in the 20th century. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Hi, Kirsten. Hi. Thank you so much for joining the Jewish History Matters podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So, I actually wanted to start with a joke. Um, (laughs) That's awesome. So, it's actually a French joke, a French Jewish joke, as I understand it. So, it's the story of uh, Mr. Monsieur Katzman, who goes to the French authorities in the early 20th century. Because he wants to change his name. And he finds that Katzman is far too foreign sounding, far too Jewish sounding. So he asks, you know, would it be possible to change the name? And the, the French official tells him, Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so what's your name? Katzman. So he breaks Katzman into two and he asks him, So what does Katz mean in German? And the Jewish man says, It means sha, cat in English. Uh, okay, what does man mean? And the man answers, it means l'homme, the man. So the French official says, okay, catsman, you are no no longer Katzman, but shalom. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) It is marvelous because it's really about how you're revealing Jewish identity in the process of trying to conceal it. As you say in the book, Jewish name-changing is no laughing matter. We have a lot of jokes involving name-changing, but it is, in fact, a very serious topic. And so I wanted to start the conversation by asking you why it is such a serious topic. And also, what do you mean by name changing? Because I think the readers need to understand what that meant in the American context. So the first thing that's really important to say is I only looked at one
2: archive, one space for name changing, which was official name changing in civil court. It wound up being an incredibly rich space, but there's lots of other places and lots of other ways that people could change their names. For example, when I started talking about my work, I had immigration historians say, you know, but this is not the only kind of name changing that happens. You know, if you read immigration memoirs, you can see, and I teach for my students memoirs where people, you know, decide to change their name on the shop floor. You know, all the people they work with at the, the sweatshop all sit around and spend the day talking about what your new American name should be. There's definitely kind of informal name changing. People sort of take on names and the U.S. is among, if not the, then among the most flexible places in name changing. You can really informally change your name to anything you want without any kind of permission or official status whatsoever. And it's legal. This is kind of Anglo-American law. But the U.S. actually took it even to a greater extent than England in some ways. Um, You know, sort of informal name-changing, people selecting names because they like them, because it sounds good those actually are, are themselves legal. So people can really change their names to anything. So because I was using official name changes in city and civil court, I was looking at people who chose to do so officially, who chose to be having the state know about their name changing. And so choosing to look at official name changing meant that I was also looking not just at the state, It wound up meaning also that I was looking at other kinds of people who might be interested in your name, private employers or universities or other kinds of places and spaces where they might be surveilling you, where they might be watching you, questioning why your name looks different from one place from the other. What I saw gave us a real insight into the impact of name changing and the importance of it, which is actually kind of your second question, right? Why is this important and why is it serious? A lot of what I found in the archives, I mean, I think a lot of people would have found it boring. People's reasons for changing their names, if you didn't spend a lot of time looking at them, they were very boring. You know, I want to change my name because it's hard to spell, because it's hard to pronounce. People can't remember it. It's hard to say on the telephone, you know, a lot of sort of things like that. So you had to kind of read through the lines, but also some sad stories. People who would talk about being excluded in the military, people who talked about their employer telling them they had to change their name when they got promoted, people who wanted to erase memories of having escaped Germany during World War II. There are a lot of those sad stories. And then in other kinds of readings I did and oral histories that I did, it's not always, you know, sort of a tragedy, but there's a lot of lingering sadnesses. There's a lot of lingering ambivalence. And I think The larger part to the story is people feeling like they had to do this. Some of the interesting part of looking at the state and the government's interest in doing this, right, and sort of making name changing available to people so easily, right, so readily, you can change your name, go ahead and change your name, is voluntarism. The circumstances under which they're changing their names are not free and open. They are constrained. They are significantly constrained. They're not sort of forcibly coerced, but they are constrained and sometimes they are being asked to or told to change their names by employers, by military officers, by defense industry contractors, by people who kind of represent some kind of power and have interactions with a state or certainly with their possibilities of getting a job and, and living in America. I think it's interesting that everybody's treated this so much as a joke that no scholar studied it, you know, which I find really interesting, right? That people have so far brushed this and treated it as something that was not serious, that was insignificant or humorous, something that was not really important.
1: So you actually mentioned the state a few times. So I wanted to ask you about the state. What's at stake in controlling names and name changes from a state perspective? So the federal government begins asking about name changes voluntarily
2: on um, naturalization petitions in 1906. It is, you know, voluntary. It's just a line on your naturalization petition. So I only did a very limited look at naturalization petitions, but I found at least a few where somebody clearly had changed like their name so that it looked very different. But clearly the people setting this out, but they didn't fill out a name change. Like the government didn't see this change in spelling as actually being a change in name. So there's a certain amount of laxity that European immigrants are being treated with in their ability to change their names. So my story more begins with really World War I um, and then especially the interwar period and World War II. And it spirals as the welfare state, right, as the government begins to be concerned with issues of security. And be concerned that the people standing in front of whatever federal worker may not be who they say. So, one of the most important things I think that leads to the 1940s in particular being sort of the place where you see more of these official petitions being submitted than any other time in the 20th century is that the government decides that during World War II, it actually happens in 1938 they begin having defense contractors require birth certificates um, so that they can ensure the safety of their defense plans. So you see beginning in, you know, the 1930s, 1940s, this kind of spiraling, you know, people start to have to produce their birth certificates in order to get jobs, to become a part of the war effort, which is where these jobs are happening. And then as people begin to register for the draft or as they begin to try to be officers, they are getting inconsistent, right? It's not, I don't think this is every single person who goes to apply to become an officer or to register for the draft or even to try to work for the defense industry. But what you get is just more and more people who are getting defense contractors or officers or ROTC people or whoever saying, oh, your name doesn't match. You know, you're going to have troubles. You know, you need to come back and produce a birth certificate that matches. So some of this is about security, right? Security as the country is going to war. And I think some of it is just about the government beginning to look to documents. They are trying more during the welfare state, but especially during the war, to keep track of who's who. I didn't see a lot um, that was necessarily pushed by the Alien Registration Act, but that is something that is, you know, starting to begin to question people who have not become citizens yet. And so my guess is that is playing, you know, a subtextual role in some people's decisions to do this. The state is beginning to want to keep track of people. And so this kind of very open-ended name policy, which was working really to sort of bring white immigrants into the country and enfold them seamlessly as the U.S. goes to war, as it begins to offer benefits like welfare benefits, but also especially as it begins to go to a second war, it begins to want to keep track of people. And it's using names as a part of that way of kind of keeping track of people.
1: You're making the case for why we need to look at name changing from a legal perspective, right? Name changing as a legal procedure, because one can assume that people lived with changed names for a long time before they eventually decided to undergo a kind of a legal name change. And they probably did it in response to the political and legal context that you've just described, right? All of a sudden, your name really matters. Yes,
2: I absolutely do have evidence of that. It's important to know like how many of these are, you know, people who voluntarily chose to change their names but then, you know, one year, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years sometimes down the road, they feel the need to come do this officially. And I have tons and tons of petitions. And as I say, I think it's somewhere between 20 and 30%. It's a significant number of people who say, clear out, this is the name I've gone by for this many years. You know, I am known by this name in all these different places. People sometimes produce all the different documents in which they are known by this name. You know, here's my social security card. Here's my this. This is the name that I now want to be officially known by. So yeah, I mean, it absolutely is about this kind of disjuncture between this kind of flexible policy, but then this kind of, as the state comes to be able to control more benefits and also have more sticks that it can wield, it just becomes more to people's advantage to change their name officially. Um, And so that's why they begin doing it in large numbers. I mean, especially World War II, because that's really where the state is, is really watching.
1: One of the claims that you you make in the book is that name changing was in some ways a, a Jewish phenomenon because based on the records that you have had access to, Jews change names in far greater numbers than other ethnic groups. And so I wonder if uh, this specificity also applies to the names that they change. Was there a specifically Jewish way of choosing your new name? I
2: felt like there was. For me, the Jews much more frequently are choosing names that are just the most unremarkable names they can possibly find. I mean, sometimes they are just lopping off the ends of their names in ways that I think are actually really distinguishable, which which provides kind of a code for Jews who are looking for it, right? So a name like Burke, spelled B-E-R-K really, that is not the English spelling of Burke. You know what I mean? Which would be like B-U-R-K-E, which is the much more common like English spelling of Burke. So to me, Burke, B-E-R-K or B-E-R-K-E is like it's a Berkowitz, right? Like Once I started looking at these files, I was like, okay, that's what that is. That's really obvious. Or Rose for Rosenberg or Rosenstein or things like that. And you see so many of those. And there are jokes actually about sort of coded Jewish names, you know, so many name changes that people can tell that that's a changed name. I think that that definitely does happen to some extent that Jews are kind of just lopping off names in a very specific way, in a way that kind of like makes things easy and allows other Jews to know. I also though think that they are in general looking for kind of the most unnoticeable name possible. And that to me is a signal of the fact that they are looking to escape anti-Semitism. You know, this isn't about Americanism. This isn't about Americanization. They want to be invisible. And I feel really strongly about this. You know, there's such a sense that people are Americanizing. I still get this comment all the time. It drives me crazy because, number one, most of them are American. 75% of them are native-born Americans. They're not immigrants. Um, immigrants could change their names on the naturalization petitions. So here we have these thousands of native-born Americans who are born in New York and are like completely New Yorkers. And they're choosing names that are completely pronounceable and spellable within an American context. If they have a name like Berkowitz or Goldstein, these names are completely spellable and pronounceable within an American context. You know, if they choose a different English name, for example, like they might go from say, Sydney to Stephen. That's also not Americanization and it's not Anglicization. It it just kind of drives me nuts because they're already American and they're choosing names that are not any more American than the names they're born with. They want to escape racism. Their names are codes. It sort of buys into the notion that Jewish names are actually foreign names, which also is also something that people say in their petitions, right? This is too foreign sounding of a name, but they're American. So I really do resist that. And I think the fact that they're choosing either to lop off names or choose like names like Edwards or sometimes Smith. I have seen some Smiths. Um, They're choosing names that won't be looked at twice. And in fact, there is um, some guidance for refugees thinking about changing their names in the Aufbau in a journal that was published in the U.S. for German refugees.
1: That's fascinating.
2: Yeah. And it actually gives suggestions like if you're thinking about changing your name, make sure you choose something that's not one of the American names that they are proud of. There was a big thing in the 1930s about a Jew who chose a name, uh, of a very wealthy, very prominent New Englander Cabot, right? Kabashnik who goes to Cabot, right? So there's a whole thing. So don't choose names of any prominent people. Don't choose names of anyone elite. Don't choose names of anybody famous. Americans are very proud of Washington and Lincoln. So don't choose those kinds of names. Do something that you're not going to be noticed by.
1: Really the book, among other things, really focuses on the history of American anti-Semitism. There has been somewhat of a consensus in most of the American Jewish historiography about the notion that America was uh, unique in that it was better for Jews than pretty much the rest of the world. But in recent years, Jewish historians have started to question this consensus. Of course, uh, in the wake of the Pittsburgh attack, this critique of American Jewish exceptionalism is no longer an abstract debate among historians. We see this discussion going on within the American Jewish community of about whether America is really unique in that sense. And I think those recent events, in turn, have renewed the scholarly interest in the history of American antisemitism. What your book seems to argue is that American antisemitism was far more potent than Jewish historians have acknowledged. So I would love to hear from you about how antisemitism historically has shaped the lives of ordinary Jews, particularly in the economic and, and social spheres. When I started this, I didn't think I was going to be writing about anti-Semitism.
2: I mean, I think that's something that is important to know, you know, that I, that wasn't where I started it. But once I started looking at it and sort of thinking about how to frame what I was finding, it's really clear. It shapes people's personal lives, right? And one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is the sense that, yeah, it existed, but it didn't really have much impact. Right? It didn't really affect people. You know, they figured out how to go on with their lives. Or this wasn't really anti-Semitism. It was just a matter of, you know, ethnic groups defending their own privileges and priorities, and Jews were no worse treated than anybody else. And my sense is that American Jewish historians felt themselves hemmed in because if you're writing in an American context, histories of violence and sort of legalized violence against other groups of color, right? African-Americans, Asian-Americans was so much more powerful and so much more violent that I think that in contrast, American Jews thought, well, we're not the same, right? It seems embarrassing to kind of, you know, talk about Jews in a similar kind of context. And by the same token, it was nothing like what happened in the Holocaust, and so American Jewish historians are kind of like, well, so what happened here isn't that bad. That's my own read on why this occurred. Sort of there's kind of these differing political polls that leads people to sort of make this argument. But it comes into these kind of strange twist ties like, oh, so Jews just created their own vacation homes and they, they got employment in their own circles and they figured out how to be self-employed. And so they didn't have to be getting jobs elsewhere. If you put all of that together, you, you offer a portrait of an incredibly hemmed in life, a life that is really feels pretty segregated, that feels very, very limited, that does expose you to huge amounts of discrimination, of literal racism. And I think that to me, one of the more important things about looking at names that I think changes part of this conversation a little bit is that, you know, people saying, oh, this is just like all other ethnic groups, you know, preserving their privileges, right? There was some example of, I don't know, how all the telephone operator jobs went to Italians or something like that. But the thing is, is that Jews' names themselves were used as racial markers to discriminate against them. So this is one of the things that I think was really important about my work. Even though everybody knows this happened, nobody really thinks it through, applications for jobs and for universities are actually specially constructed to keep out Jews, to try to identify who are Jews and to keep them out. And frankly, both names and name-changing serves the same purpose on these forms. So people are using these bureaucratic ways of identifying Jews and, and marking them. So it's not just an ethnicity that you can choose to be this ethnic group and it identifies your people and your heritage and your culture. People can't avoid this, right? There's no way to avoid having these names that thereby limit where you live, what kind of a job you get, where you go to school, right? Where you vacation, right? A whole host of things. You live this incredibly hemmed in life that you don't really have a choice unless you want to lie entirely and completely and create an entirely new persona for yourself. That's an incredibly hemmed in life. And I think by looking at Jews being treated as a separate race in this way, I mean, I think this is a part, you know, in the U.S., we tend to think about race as being something that's completely about skin color. Not always true because of Latinos, but even Latinos, a lot of times the focus is on skin color or, you know, sort of physiognomy, by right? you know, facial features. Um, but I think by looking at names and the ways that they are used very, very specifically in this moment, really to identify who Jews are, to really determine this is who the Jews are, right? It's people who answer questions in these particular ways or who have these kinds of names and then use that as a basis to exclude them Is really marking them out as a separate race in the larger society. So it really did shape people's lives. To say that Jews found workarounds is not to say that they weren't experiencing really significant and painful humiliation and discrimination and racism. Names offer us a lens into that in a way that I think is important.
1: So, you know, when we contrast the situation in the US with the rest of the world, we always think, oh, well, American anti-Semitism wasn't as strong because it wasn't state policy. But as you just said, it doesn't mean that it's less painful for the individuals who are experiencing social anti-Semitism and economic anti-Semitism on a daily basis. Exactly.
2: And also that it is backed up by the state in some ways. Like it's at least certainly permitted by the state. It's not deemed to be illegal. It's deemed to be perfectly legal. I found at least some bits of evidence that it's also practiced by the state. So I have a few petitions from people who say I couldn't get a job, you know, in the 1930s, and then I changed my name and I got a job at a government agency. They're using the same kinds of employment standards. So it is backed up and grounded by the state and is also sometimes even used by the
1: state. Right. And it also speaks to the power of the bureaucracy to discriminate against certain groups. So it's, it's very subtle ways of excluding a particular group of people.
2: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And that's why I found bureaucracy. I mean,
1: people don't think about it. They
2: don't pay attention to it. They're actually, my most recent article actually deals with name changing more contemporarily. And I look among the groups that are doing much more name changing recently has been transgender people. And there's a recent, very influential book about transgender rights by a person named Dean Spade. I think it's called Normal Violence. But it's basically about bureaucracy and the ways that bureaucracy sort of is this kind of reflection in the law of the ways that people can be discriminated against and actually have violence committed against their persons through these very bureaucratic means. These kinds of things that seem on their face non-discriminatory actually can be used in these incredibly non-neutral ways, right? In ways that commit violence against people for a variety of ways, racial, ethnic, gender, they're not at all neutral, But I think that there's more and more a sense of the importance of bureaucracy. It's kind of a way of taking these forms and what we find in the archives and really taking them apart in ways that I think are really important.
1: So I actually have um, a question that also relates to uh, anti-Semitism, which is, you know, American Jewish responses to anti-Semitism. And I think that's where your book really makes a, a contribution Instead of looking at famous activists or lawyers would try to respond to anti-Semitism by attempting to change the law, you show that in actuality, this wasn't the case for most people. Most people did not become activists, would try to change the law. Instead, they adopted uh, strategies such as name changing that allowed them to overcome kind of the daily discriminations that they faced. So they didn't publicly brought attention to the obstacles that they faced in, in their economic and social lives. And even the the petitions themselves oftentimes are silent, they try to not bring too much attention to the anti-Semitism that they faced. All of this is to ask you, how does the picture of ordinary Jews changing their names add to our understanding of American Jewish communal life in the, in the 20th century? Why does it matter to look at this ordinary people whose names, you know, have been totally forgotten? Why do these name changes matter? I don't know that I thought about it consciously before
2: I started the book, but I think that Since I've written and have to explain more about it, is because we've looked so much at American Jewish communal life. We've looked so much more at organizational records. That's been where we've looked to understand Jews, has been these organizational records. People who affiliate and identify and sort of try to promote a Jewish perspective. And we all know that that is not the bulk of where Jews have been. That not all Jews have participated in those kinds of Jewish communal experiences. Ordinary Jews, for the most part, have not and do not today. And so part of why I think it's important is that I think I wanted to look at people who are not defined by the Jewish community, who may not be a part of the Jewish community. And I think it's harder to do. So I think that looking at name change petitions was a great place to be able to look at you know just kind of people living their lives as Jews or you know as people who are identified as Jews because of their names but themselves are not trying to act in a Jewish way right they're not they're not trying to reflect or participate what you know or 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 say this is what it means to be Jewish or defend Jews they are living what it means to be a Jewish life um and I really wanted to be able to use these kinds of archives in this way, rather than looking at communal records. Not that communal records are bad. I mean, I'll also talk about what I found in the communal records that I think is really important. But I think it's it, it, these kinds of records really do allow us to get a really different perspective on what American Jewish life was like in the 20th century than looking at, you know, archival or synagogue records. I really thought that was important. I was really grateful to be able to have this kind of really interesting space to look at Jewish life. But I also think that. The Jewish community responds differently to name-changing. Different organizations, different groups, different people, different Jewish leaders respond differently to name-changing. For some Jews, name-changing looks like a, a threat. It looks like people are betraying the Jewish community. And so you can see rabbis and artists, novelists and short story writers and a whole host of, you know, other people sort of painting this portrait of name changers as kind of betrayers. I think that you can see that name changing kind of shines a light again on anxiety, especially after the war. A sense that people are kind of abandoning the Jewish community, even here in America, where they don't have to, where they haven't been faced with you know any kind of murderous impulse. There's actually an article, um, I think, in Commentary or in one of you know the journals that kind of says that. So we see this real anxiety about name changing right after the war. You know, why are people embarrassed or ashamed of being Jewish? There's a real anxiety that I think name changing brings out during this moment when people, I think, are, are shocked and are reeling from the news of Europe um, and trying to figure out what it means for their own lives. And name changers, I think, look like easy targets, I think, in some ways. I did look at Jewish civil rights activists, and I'm struck by the fact that some Jewish civil rights activists also were really negative about name changers um, because they saw them not confronting discrimination openly. So there's a really interesting editorial from the American Jewish Congress from a mid-level activist in the American Jewish Congress who says, you know, you know, great, you changed your name. Can you actually confront, you know, discrimination now? Can you confront racism? No, you can't because you've changed your name and you have to go along and pretend that you're a bigot just like the people you're talking to. You know, this is a completely ineffective way of fighting anti-Semitism. So you have that perspective. But what I found most fascinating that I think people have not done anything with is the ways that civil rights activists are seeing name changing being used as a proxy for Jewishness, right? All of these applications that are being put out by Harvard and Columbia and, you know, employment agencies all over the city, all over the state are asking people, have you ever changed your name? And they're developing that question and they're using that question as a proxy for Jewishness. And so civil rights activists as much as they may kind of lament and I did find you know some, a little bit of evidence at least from from this person's piece and a couple other things they may they may lament that people are not actively standing up at the barricades and saying this is discrimination but nonetheless they are willing to sort of see name changing as like a legitimate activity, right? Something, this is something that Jews are doing and we can't let them be discriminated against. This is a proxy for Jewishness and we need to make it just as illegal to discriminate against somebody because they've changed their names as it is because they attend a synagogue. So to me, I'm really struck by the ways that the Jewish community is kind of forced to engage name changing. It's not that everybody's doing it, but it's such a commonplace part of the Jewish community in the 1930s and the 1940s that by the 1940s and 1950s, you know, the Jewish community has to address it in some ways. And while they're not always happy about it um, and they sometimes sort of mark these, you know, they they decry these Jews um, who change their names, they also kind of support them and defend them, right? They see this as something that Jews are doing and they need to accept it.
1: It struck me that in the book, you really tell two separate stories that are related to one another, but are nonetheless separate. So, the first one is what we've been discussing, right? How ordinary American Jews turn to the law to change their names. But the second story that you tell is really how this story has been told from within the community by communal leaders, as you alluded to, but also by Jewish authors. So, you have a lot of literary references, right? And so, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how uh, that history has been told by American Jews themselves and what it says about you know, their collective identity in the 20th century.
2: What I was struck by is the ways that in the years before World War II, 1930s, 1940s, you know, there are so many people changing their names. And I was really struck by the fact that there are stories, like you have the jazz singer, um, you know, is really famous. There's short stories by Ferber. And there are these stories that see name changing as like this ordinary thing. It's a young person's thing. It's something that like the jazz singer is the best example, but you see it elsewhere. It's something that, you know, sort of young people of lots of different ethnic groups are doing to get ahead. It's a generational split. This is a sense of this is what happens in America. Kind of this Americanization story is totally normal. Lots of people are doing this. Um, And that it has to do with becoming famous too. The jazz singer also really kind of replicates this kind of image of, you know, this is what famous people do after the war, you see much more anxiety about it. You see still women doing it, but there becomes this very strong sense of betrayal, right? This very strong sense that these people are self-hating Jews. So that that comes from Kurt Levin. Uh, Susan Glenn has actually written about the phenomenon of the discourse of the self-hating Jew kind of taking over American intellectual life. And you know this kind of sense that if you've changed your name you're a self-hating jew you've betrayed the community you're abandoning the community there's no kind of chance for you to reconcile you know you are kind of cast out or you're casting yourself out you're choosing to leave you know on your own and then by the 1960s 1970s as there really are no more people changing their names they're not no more not no more there are still jews changing names really up through the 80s um jews are disproportionate in the files but there's far fewer as this becomes not a part of people's lived experiences anymore, the image becomes of these men. It's no longer women doing it at all. It's all these men who have betrayed their families and their communities by becoming American. I mean, that's the joke actually, is that becoming American, you know, you've become a part of this kind of corrupt America. My favorite vision of this is the movie Avalon directed by Bruce Levinson of these kind of, you know, once you've become a part of America, you've you've kind of embraced its corruption, its television, its, you know, sort of lack of family and lack of culture and lack of community and your entire family life and your culture as you know it will just crumble completely. This kind of latter vision is really different. It's in this later period that you see many more references to Ellis Island officials changing people's names as well, you know, I think because it just becomes more embarrassing to have changed your name. People who change their names look like they've destroyed their families, they've abandoned their culture and their community. They destroyed a way of life, you know, in some ways. To me, it's in part because nobody's really talking about the real experiences of name changing. And they're not really talking about people doing this because of anti-Semitism. By the sixties and seventies, there's almost sometimes no mention of
1: anti-Semitism. I was really interested of Your discussion of how the cultural trope of Ellis Island officials changing Jewish names is actually not as grounded in in historical reality as most of us have have assumed. Because like most people, I also thought that was a, a widespread phenomenon. And I thought it was so fascinating that this is kind of a later story that American Jews have told themselves about name changing. It's a very delicate thing. I've actually, and I'm not the only person who
2: said this. I mean, this is the interesting thing for me. I mean, the bulk of my research is more to kind of say, you know, there's no evidence of names being changed at Ellis Island. Um, And there's lots of evidence of people changing their names in the ways that I'm showing. There's lots of documentation of name changing in this really different way. So rather than sort of grasping to a story that, you know, most genealogists, believe is not the case. There's not a lot of evidence of it, right? Most of the oral histories, most of the stories that have been told for the most part, don't tell the story. And U.S. law doesn't give any right to Ellis Island officials to change their name. You don't, you didn't walk off the island with any documentation that was lasting. You didn't get a, you know, your passport changed. They had no control over that. You know, that wasn't what they were doing it's really hard to tell people that their family stories aren't true. But I think that what really happens is that people either just don't know the story or they there's this really kind of negative image of name changing. And so I think as people got further away from the story of name changing, you know, the, at least official name changing that I looked at as people got further away from that, the jokes um, and the stories wound up becoming much more squarely penned on Ellis Island officials who you could blame, right? Especially in the 1960s and the 70s when every ethnic group, you know, every racial group is blaming the U.S. government, very rightly so, for discrimination. This is a story that you can tell about how your culture and your heritage was ripped away from you. And it's a much harder, I think, and more painful story, even though it's a story about antisemitism, right? It's, it is a story about hatred towards your group and about discrimination towards your group. But I think it's not a story because people went along and participated in, you know, they voluntarily changed their names. I think it just, it became a a story that people didn't want to tell. This is not a story that people are talking about when they're immigrants. It comes on much later constructed as the Jewish community itself is kind of grappling, I think, with name changing and what it means in dealing with these kinds of anxieties. And I think people don't want to be the ones who change their family names, because it can bring up a lot of pain.
1: Right. And that's something I found very moving about the book, especially in the epilogue, is the long lasting ramifications of name changes and how emotional it is, not only for the people we're doing this, but also for their descendants. Yeah.
2: And that's actually something that I just, you know, when people sort of say, oh, but it's, you know, it's a minority, you know, most people didn't change their names. You know, you're only studying sort of what happens to a minority. I think that on the one hand, yes, that's true. It was a minority. But on the other hand, number one, even if it was a minority who actually went ahead and changed their names, it was most Jews who knew people were changing names and actually felt this kind of pressure to change their names. So lots of people feel this kind of intensity. So it it really does affect the entire culture, right, at a certain time. But then also, it's also their children. So if one person changes their name in, say, 1930 if it's a man, you know, or if it's like, let's say a couple, a man and a woman, which would have been quite common, then their children and their grandchildren have that new name. And that name is their name. They're not going back, you know, grandchildren don't go back and change those names afterwards. So those become the names. So the Jewish community now is living in a world where lots of people are the product of name changes. And this is the thing that is always really interesting to me also, is that I give talks and people will say, oh, those people didn't really stay Jewish. You know, what about their children? And what about their grandchildren? But the funny thing about that is that we all, like, I go to a synagogue and one of the most religious people there has a name that was a changed name, you know? And this is true. Like, I did a little bit of research looking in Landsmannschaft records and synagogue records, and they all have names changed, right? And people still in the community. So what does this mean for all these people when they have to kind of not be marked as Jews? Um, And I've talked to people about how painful that is for them
1: as well. It's so interesting. And my husband is Isaac Jenkins. often laments that um, he ended up with the one name that was changed. So all of his other grandparents' names, great-grandparents' names were, you know, typical Russian Jewish names. And the only branch that had the name changed was on his father's side. So he ended up with a very Anglo name that doesn't actually reflect his origins. And, you know, he's often told me, like, you know, why he ended up with this Anglo name when, when really all my ancestors came from Russia, from Jewish Russia, the story in his case, as it's told by his family, is that the name was changed in Canada. The story was that the great-grandfather was Aaron Genkin. I think they assumed that he was Genkin, and he was drafted into the Canadian army, and they decided that he would be Harry Jenkins. So it's interesting. The Canada piece, I'm not sure. Maybe you have something similar uh, to what we're seeing in the United States, where people are kind of rewriting the history to kind of avoid talking about the agency of ordinary Jews in, in changing their names. I don't know. But it's it's interesting. That's the narrative that is inherited from his family. The number of people
2: who sort of tell stories about getting a name changed by an officer, or, or more likely, and I've had a number of this kind of trope, like, you know, people either going into the military and um, having the officer, you know, sort of say, oh, you need to change your name. Or having the officer say, that's not actually your name. And them saying, really? I didn't know it was on my birth certificate, right? Or really, I didn't know my family had changed their name. So going in the military is really interesting. That does sound a lot like a story that probably is (laughs) not true and that is probably more true that it sounded like a good name to them at the time. It sounded like something that would be easier to say, you know. Um,
1: I'll hide your book from him. <laughs> yes,
2: please do. Please, do. that's the thing. Like, you know, I really, I feel very bad about these things. I really don't want to be pressured into saying that, you know, it's, you know, your boobie was lying to you. <laughs> um, but so I know other people, Marion Smith is the archivist at the National Archives who has published on, you know, sort of the fact that it's, that's probably didn't happen in Ellis Island. And she said that she gets nasty emails from people all over the world telling her she's absolutely wrong and all kinds of things. I mean, it's really hard to move away from these stories. And we frequently just don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting parts of this is that people just don't always know their family stories, you know, they they either haven't done the research or they can't find it. I mean, a lot of it is not in documents, right? Right. Not not everybody can find the document of of their, their name changes. And so everybody's kind of grasping for answers and they don't necessarily want answers that make their ancestors look bad. So I think that plays a role into it as well. So I am sorry. About Isaac. I, I apologize. I mean, and I don't know for sure. I can't say. But I mean, I assume that Canada has kind of this, I mean, Anglo-American law, for the most part, other than people of color and women, is pretty open about name changing, right? And my understanding is that, you know, Anglo-American law, again, for white people and men is basically like your name is your property, and it can't be changed against your will. And therefore, the other part of it is that you can change it as you will. Your choice is your choice. I would assume Canada is using the same kind of Anglo-American law. It's probably the same.
1: I don't know about Canada, but I know something really interesting about France, which is that as far as I understand it, you can change your name from a quote-unquote foreign-sounding name to a French name or whatever French means. And so as I mentioned earlier, there were people, Jews after the after World War II, who changed their names. And there's been something really fascinating happening in the 2010s, pretty much in the past decade, where some descendants of Jewish name changers have tried to reclaim their usually Ashkenazi name. But until recently, French law actually precluded people to adopt a quote unquote foreign sounding name. So you couldn't go back to your original. And that's surname or that's first name? That was for last names. So if you were Katsman Katzman and you became Dupont, you couldn't go back to Katzman. So there was actually a group of people organized to have the law changed uh, because they claimed that, you know, their ancestors, that, that the fact that they had to change their names was a form of discrimination. And so they asked that they be able to return to their ancestors' name. And eventually they won. And in 20, I think in 2013, the law was changed to allow them to go back to their great grandparents' Ashkenazi names. Do you know how many people changed their names? I don't know exactly. I, would, I, can, I can try to look it up. I don't know exactly how many people it concerns. But again, as, as you said before, even if the numbers are low, the fact that, you know, the law would preclude people from adopting foreign sounding names and, and then that the law was changed as a result of these people organizing, I think is, is very significant. I knew that France
2: limited first names, for sure. I knew that they had like a list of names that you had to choose from and things like that. And there, you know, the state has much more concern over, you know, that your names sound French. So I, I did have that sense. But what I think is really fascinating Is that so? In the US, there is no such law. There was no such law limiting people from taking back your names. You could certainly do that very easily. And yet, like, people never do it. Like, virtually nobody has done this. Like, some people have. So, I talk in the epilogue about somebody who has, and I have like maybe three examples of people who have done this, but almost nobody does. And so, I'm kind of curious whether the existence of a law and then the need to fight it actually encouraged more people to do it than they do here in the US where it's completely voluntary. And so you get a lot of people being like, yes, I'm really upset that I have this name that doesn't mark me as Jewish. And yeah, no, I don't really want to go and change it. But like when I say to people, when they say, you know, definitely my grandmother's name was changed was like, well, are you going to change it back? The thing is, nobody wants to change it back, right? And so people lived in these places, like if people's names had really been changed Ellis Island, they could have gone back and changed them at any time. And they didn't. Right. I have no evidence. I mean, I actually, in my petitions, I think I have like a few examples of Italians and maybe one or two examples of Jews. The Jews who I have going back, um, they were survivors who report that they were given bad advice. You know, they were told to change their names and now that's caused them troubles. The contacts that they had in Europe, you know, don't know them. They're facing embarrassment from their family. So there's, there's a few of those examples, but very, very few. You know what I mean? So I'm curious whether like having to fight against something makes you want to do it more than like this kind of voluntary where you actually know you're taking on this name and you don't have to.
1: In one article I read about someone who actually didn't know that he had Jewish ancestry. And when the dad, I think, passed away, he realized that, you know, his family had survived the war. And- so I think part of reclaiming the name is also kind of coming to terms with this very particular history uh, in which the French state played a very direct role. Yes, absolutely. And that was looking
2: really different for people in the U.S.
1: I do want to return to the types of myths that American Jews have told themselves about name changing and uh, particularly about the fact that we tend to imagine name changers as, as being men, typically, and often single men. And your books show that it's very much not grounded in the records that you found. So I wonder uh, if you can talk a little bit more about who the name changers were, especially uh, the gender dynamic.
2: This to me was one of the things that I found that was the most interesting. And it really led me to see, you know, again, if I didn't go into this project thinking I was going to write about antisemitism, I also didn't go in thinking that it was a gendered story or that it was a story about family. But I mean, what was really fascinating was that I had this image myself of a name changer as a you know single man. And I realized as I was going through just how many children and just how many women and how many families were changing their names. You know, there were certainly individual men um, and probably, you know, it was a majority men doing it in the mid-20th century. It was a real majority of men doing it in, say, the 1880s, 1890s. But by the time you get to kind of the moment that I'm writing about in, say, the 1920s through the 1960s, 70s, it is majority men, but there is a... Dis- I mean, women and children by the 1940s are pretty much roughly parity. There's like 30% women and 20% children, roughly. By children, I mean, I should say that children, you're a child legally at this moment um, when you're under 21. So this is not always like, you know, two-year-old. Somebody asked me that. It's not like two-year-olds coming to the court and asking for their name to be changed. But a lot of times it is. I mean, it's much more than I ever would have imagined that parents are changing their names for their children. They're school-age children. They're changing their names um, who are being teased. Men and women are getting their names changed when they get married because they anticipate they're going to have a family and they want their children to have a different name. Young parents are coming in with children who range from, you know, Infants to college age, college age kids are coming in with their brothers who are slightly older. So their older brother might change their names for them. You know, I found adult families of adult siblings, three siblings and their spouses and their children all changing their name on one petition. It speaks to our myth, right? Our sense of what this is, right? And the fact that we've been divorced from the ways that this was a part of the normal way that people imagined they were getting jobs, you know, making a living, making sure that everybody could go to school, get a job and eat in the middle of the depression, right? It's cheap to put everybody on the petition. It's the same price. And everybody then can sort of look middle class, right? Everyone can share the same name. So there's no anxiety. I mean, it's interesting, your story about Isaac Jenkins, you know, everybody else in the family changes their names because there can be some embarrassment if people have different names in the family. So it makes sense for as many people as possible in the family to change their names because it increases their middle class chances. I mean, it's basically a form of capital, like for Jews at this moment. You know, what I also found fascinating was the ways that it got, you know, women got blamed in pop culture sometimes for being the name changers. So there's, you know, a story by one of the people who writes about name changing in the 40s that totally puts the blame on, you know, women in the mid century, women as social climbers, women as, you know, sort of self haters. In a lot of stories, uh, become kind of the dominant name changer, right? They are the the social climbers and the ones who are the most sensitive to name changing. They're not dominant, but they are doing it, and they are sometimes doing it alone as well, right? So it's families doing it, but there's also a lot of single women. And I actually think this is not really what my work argues or finds, but I think the subtext for me about this that I came to realize is that in part, you know, Jews' ability to succeed in the middle class is in part because of so many of its single women going to work in white collar businesses, which is not something that others, so like, if you look at work comparing Italian and Jewish women working, it's much more Jewish women who are going out for white collar jobs and it's those white collar jobs that Jewish women need to change their names for. And you see that in the files, see Jewish middle-class ambitions in the numbers of single women who are looking for jobs as secretaries, saleswomen in advertising, sometimes in the entertainment industry, but really much more for prosaic jobs. They're looking, and and I really feel like you see Jewish middle-class construction in these young women who are spending this money even knowing that they're going to change their names, right? They're 24, they're 26, maybe they figure they have another four, six years tops of using the name. But it's so valuable economically to them and sometimes to their families that they go ahead and change their names and spend the money on it because they want that kind of middle class advancement. They need that middle class advancement and they can't get their jobs without it and then to find the ways that that is kind of that story gets erased by the 60s and 70s so that it's never Jewish women who were name changers right it's all, unless they were movie stars right? right right but it's never just kind of ordinary secretaries who changed their names when in fact actually in pretty good numbers it was Jewish secretaries i've identified like 3 groups that are doing so so none of them individually like are you know numerically dominant but together they are and they're mostly doing it because they are struggling with gender roles that are outdated, right? They are struggling with their family. So the three groups are single mothers who want to change their children's names when the father of the child is out of the picture. And then there are women who married and decided to keep their names, but decide You know, days, weeks, months, years later, usually when they're going to have a kid, that they want to take their husband's names because it will be confusing once they have children to not have their children's names, which once again presumes that the child will have their father's name, which is by no means required. But that is kind of the assumption that all of these people are going through and that the law is not set up for. Um, And then finally, there's transgender people. So almost 9% of petitioners in 2012 are transgender so they are clearly struggling or negotiating gender uh, definitions of gender that don't fit their own. Name-changing has been feminized because our changing gender roles, right, changing gender reality and changing uh, marital reality doesn't really reflect the bureaucracy, kind of a static bureaucracy of assumptions um, about gender and about marriage. It's also, I think, importantly become feminized because it's been democratized. It's now cheaper. You don't need a lawyer. And so therefore, women's time can be spent online. When it was lawyers and it was men paying the lawyers, it was men who were doing it. But as soon as you actually have to stand online yourself and you actually have to do the work yourself, it's women much more than men who are the ones who are flexible, are the ones who need it more, are the ones who, you know, are made to, are required to do that standing in line. Um, divorce is another place where it shows up. That's what I found for gender. That, none of that is in the book.
1: It's really interesting to see about the the parallels and the differences between, you know, the Jewish story and then the, the contemporary gendered story. So in the the final chapter, you talk about name changers in New York today. And I'd like to hear a bit more from you about how name changers in New York in the contemporary era differ from the the Jewish story that you tell in the book.
2: I've already talked a little bit about
1: sort of the ways that it's been
2: feminized, um, which is in part about changing gender roles that aren't reflected in the bureaucracy, but is also in part because it's been democratized. Um, The city, for different reasons, has decided to make their court systems more open, more accessible to people without um, means. Through the 90s, through the 2000s, they've gone through a variety of steps to allow people to waive the fees for changing their names, to make it so that you don't need a lawyer, so that you can fill your own file. It's now a do-it-yourself online process it really makes it cheaper. And so because of that, it has really become an act for not the middle class any longer. I mean, what the part of the reason that Jews were doing it um, in such large numbers was because of anti-Semitism, but it was also partially because Jews were the middle class group with the most means to be able to change their names. And what's really interesting now is that you have groups who are working class, who are poor, who are changing their names in much larger numbers. But what's also really interesting about that is that they are not always changing their names for the same reasons that Jews were doing so. You know, middle class Jews were doing so both because they could and because they wanted to advance more in the middle class. What I've wound up finding out is that there are still people who are changing their names for ethnic reasons. Um, There are a lot of Chinese Americans who are changing their names, changing first names. Usually it's parents changing their first names of their children. Um, Sometimes adults changing their own first names, but more likely parents changing their names of their children but it's only their first names. It's never their last names. I think people can probably understand pretty easily why, you know, Jews' racial identity was marked in their names. For Chinese Americans, it is not always, but generally always identified by their skin color, by their facial features. And so first names will be changed in ways that are not completely different from Jews. Parents are still acknowledging their children are Chinese, But this might make it easier for them, right? It might make it more possible for them to get along in the workforce, right? To show that they have these easy names that are not difficult to pronounce, that, you know, make it easier for them to fit in in school, names that can be easily pronounced and help smooth their way through American middle class life. It's not completely dissimilar from how Jews were doing so, but the fact that Jews were doing so with their last names really indicates the ways that their racial identity was very much marked by those last names in a way that's not true for Chinese Americans. And because of this, I think you can see that Chinese are not doing so in nearly the sort of disproportionate numbers that Jews were. Their name changing doesn't look disproportionate the ways that Jews name changing looked disproportionate. I did find that people with Middle Eastern sounding names were changing their names. I mean they were they they weren't disproportionate in the files because Muslim and Arabic names people are are much smaller minority than Jews were in New York in the middle of the twentieth century. but nonetheless, Muslim and Arabic people were absolutely were changing their names in disproportionate numbers, pretty similar to the ways that Jews were. and their petitions were actually changing their names in ways that sounded a lot like why Jews were changing their names, but even more so. So people with Muslim or Arabic names would say things like, you know, since 9-11, I'm worried that there is going to be a backlash against people with Arabic-sounding names. Um, I'm worried about what this will mean for my chances of getting jobs or, uh, you know, the way that I'll be looked at at my job. And so I'd like to change my name. I mean, and these are petitions that are really sad. I mean, there's definitely a... uh, sensitivity. And people, people are clearly doing this because of the backlash against Islamic names. The interesting thing is, though, I don't see that disproportionate response in 2007 or 2012. These name change petitions were actually gathered and used by the New York City Police Department. Um, and people who were changing their names were randomly, but it wasn't random, being interviewed, which I think was purposely a signal that was being put out to Muslim and Arabic people in New York, that if you changed your name, you would be under just as much suspicion.
1: I feel like we've come full circle, right? Because we started with the expansion of the federal state and we see how that has played out, you know, in, in more recent years, uh, how that reach is becoming more and more powerful in people's lives, especially in the lives of minorities. Exactly.
2: Their names are being questioned, right? The state has has made much more expansion into people's lives. And those people who are being surveilled tend to be more poor and working class people. And when I give this talk, people will say, well, you know, I have trouble at the airport if my name doesn't, you know, reflect other names. And I say, yeah, but they usually let you through. But I do sort of make the point, you know, my son has had a passport with a name different from his birth certificate for years. And nobody's questioned us no matter how many trips we've taken. And that is not the case for people who are poor, who can't cash their social security checks or can't cash their regular checks or can't get Medicaid, right? Unless their name matches what is on their documentation.
1: So before ending the the conversation, I wanted to briefly talk about one of the main ideas of the book, how name-changing allowed Jews not only to enter the middle class, but also, as you argue, to redefine their racial identity as white. So I would love to hear a bit from you about the relationship between Jewishness and whiteness through name-changing cases. And also, I would love to hear a bit more about the tension that we've seen, but I think we still see that tension today between white privilege and anti-Semitism, which is that on the one hand, Jews through name-changing were allowed to live a dual existence as, you know, privately Jewish, but also kind of white in the public sphere uh, in a way that many minorities today don't have, right? They don't have the privilege of becoming white through name changing. But on the other hand, right, privilege, as we can see very much from recent cases, is no weapon against anti-Semitism. So as Jews, you can be both, you know, economically and socially successful, but also the victims of lethal anti-Jewish violence. So I wonder if you could reflect a bit about this tension and how we make sense of, you know, what the current status of American Jews is today. What I think is the contribution of thinking about
2: names and name changing is very much this focus on visibility and invisibility. You know, a lot of the people who've written about whiteness, sociologists who write about whiteness, have talked about one of the marks on the hallmarks of, of whiteness, right, which is a problematic term, but but a useful one, is, you know, the ways that white people are seen as unmarked. And that, to me, when I was doing my work, it was something that, you know, so many people who've written really smart things on Jews and whiteness or other ethnic groups in whiteness, in historical terms, never talked about visibility and invisibility. Like, so Eric Goldstein's really great book talks about, you know, how Jews kind of navigate the white-black dichotomy, mostly through using kind of cultural documents, what elites say. Or they talk about neighborhoods, like Tom Guglielmo might talk about, you know, Italians moving to Italian neighborhoods and sort of use very sort of economic, that, that kind of economic structure. But to me, what was really exciting about name-changing was that it was so clearly an almost obviously stated desire for invisibility. It was like this very clear statement, I want to be white, I want to be invisible. It gave them the ability to be both, right? In ways that we haven't always talked about. That Jews, whiteness actually allowed them to be invisible and yet the ethnic option to sort of be Jewish when they felt like it, when they wanted to be Jewish, to kind of, you know, be Jewish in the home if they wanted to, or to come out as Jewish when they felt it was safe but not necessarily to be marked as Jewish, to be identified as Jewish, if it would disadvantage them. In both the petitions that I was reading, as well as kind of like published, you know, pieces on name changing in the 1940s, that's so clearly what people want, you know? And so to me, it was this very poignant and really clear, like reflection of this desire for white privilege, which is about the fact that you can go through life completely invisible and and not be identified for exclusion. I mean, certainly like, so you might ask about like Sephardic Jewish names, which people have asked me about. Those names were not ones that were identified as Jewish names. So people who might have identified as Sephardic Jews were more likely being racially marked by their skin color than they were by their names. But nonetheless, Jewishness does not equal whiteness. um, And that's a problem. I think that clearly the people that I look at, they were imagining and wanting whiteness. And I I think that that analysis is, is a fair one. But it does not speak to all Jews and it doesn't speak to the entirety of the Jewish experience. So that's one limitation of it. The question about the contemporary moment and the ways that Jews maybe. I was just at a conference where Karen Brodkin, actually, the first person who really sort of wrote her book about how Jews became white, said, you know, it can be taken away. It's provisional. Just because we saw this trend happening doesn't mean. It's still the case, you know. And it's an ongoing story, and that's important. And I probably don't write about it that way because it's hard for historians to write about what's going on in the present. And, you know, I was done with my book by 2017. So, you know, not everything that has happened was stuff that I was ready for. And absolutely, after Pittsburgh, I kind of walked into my classes speechless and I said, I don't know what to talk about exactly, you know. Um, and I'm sorry that I haven't prepared you more. And I do feel like that. In some ways, my thinking about this was formed in an earlier era, you know? And I think that, you know, when I gave this talk in December of 2016, so right after the election, somebody asked me in the audience if I was aware that Jews were now identifying themselves on Twitter with the three quotation marks. So it's a far right thing that then Jews have embraced and adopted themselves, Right. So it's a far-right thing that, you know, in order to identify who the Jews are, you know, the far-right was using sort of three quotations with three scare quotes around their names to identify them as Jews. And that Jewish Twitter Jews themselves were embracing this um, and actually identifying themselves as Jews using three scare quotes. You know, I think that we're entering into a new world. I think that a lot of the things that I found in sort of a social an educational, in a work world, in employment, I don't know that that is necessarily changing. I don't know that, um, I mean, certainly we have civil rights laws now that are there that do make it illegal to ask questions about name changing. So some of the things are in law. Some of the things that kind of enabled the story I told, you know, I think are there. And I think that Jews have been able to take advantage of this white privilege in a social and an economic way. But it doesn't necessarily speak, I think, to other ways that I think that anti-Semitism has, it's become more visible. It's become more respectable in some ways, in some circles, not in all circles, but in some. And I think that that, it doesn't necessarily change for me what I wrote, because I think that, as I say, the experiences of those people sort of thinking that they wanted this Whiteness, they wanted what that meant for them, I think is really real. I think it reflects the experiences of those people then and their ability to write it into law that they could have that kind of white privilege, I think is what happened. But that doesn't speak to other kinds of cultural ways that Jews still are, can be, have been, and in fact, maybe are more being marked off as not white, are being targeted as not white. Those tropes clearly were there under the surface and and sometimes open, and I think now they've become more open. You know, I think that my work says that there's much more to be done about anti-Semitism, that we need to look at anti-Semitism as a broader American phenomenon and figure out the ways that it did meaningfully impact people at the time and ways that that had lasting impact in ways that it's not and that there are other kinds of forms that have become more virulent or more significant right now.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode uh, and this fabulous interview. Uh, And thanks, Geraldine, so much for sharing this conversation.
1: It was such a pleasure. And I learned so much from Kirsten's book, In the wake of Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh attacks, and really what a lot of American Jews are are perceiving as a rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, I think American Jewish historians are really reconsidering the narrative of Jewish history in the United States. And Kristen's book is a great addition to this because she really considers the role of everyday anti-Semitism in the life of Jews. And really, the story of name-changing is the story of how Jews have responded to anti-Semitism. in really focusing on this particular aspect of American Jewish history, she's really helping us rethink the role of anti-Semitism and the agency of Jews in responding to it.
0: I think that part of what's happening here that's so exciting, so interesting, and it comes across in this conversation and in the book, is the importance of names as a signifier of broad social issues. Of course, the title is a reference to Shakespeare, right? What's in a name, but of course, there's so much in a name. And I think that that really is something that we should keep in mind. There really is no such thing as a Jewish name. I think. But names are signifiers of how people want to fit into or be a part of a society. And it's part of this broad discussion of the nature of, like you said, anti-Semitism, but also people's drive towards acculturation, you know, or assimilation, if you want to use the term. There's so much going on here.
1: I want to respond to what you just said in two ways. The first one is that it's really interesting that you said there's no thing as a Jewish name. I, I would agree with you except that this is, of course, not the understanding of the historical actors that Kristen is looking at, because there was a sense at the time within American society that there was such a thing as an American name. You know, Ashkenazi names, Ashkenazi-sounding names were seen as specifically Jewish, and what Kristen shows is that they were seen as markers of Jewish identity. So names actually made Jews visible. And that brings me to my second point, which really has to do with the question of assimilation. Kirsten has noted in in the interview that this is really a story of Jews trying to Americanize. But she really counters this by saying that a lot of these Jews were already American-born. They were already Americanized for the most part. So this is not a story of Americanization, but really a story of how to make oneself invisible in light of daily anti-Semitism. So even though one might say that there's no Jewish names, people were identified as Jews by their names. And so name changing was a way to become invisible and to really join the middle class by accessing jobs um, and an education that was very much limited.
0: This highlights another important aspect, which is the importance of agency. Jews are making choices, active choices about their names. And of course, here we're really talking about last names, but it goes for first names too. What names does somebody who's having kids in the 60s, 70s, whatever, or even today, right? What name you give your child it has to do with? so many factors. But people are choosing names for their children that they think will help them to be a part of the culture in which they're living.
1: Right. And that's something I didn't really discuss with Kirsten, actually, because the, the focus was really on surnames. But first names are also really interesting. And I think there are standard English names that are very much Jewish in the American Jewish context. So there's a way to pick English names that mark you as, as Jewish. So that's a really interesting way to think about, yeah, names and and kind of transmitting your own identity while being invisible to the the broader society that you live in.
0: Right. It reminds me of this survey that was circulated pretty widely uh, a few months ago on Facebook about Jewish names. It was focused on first names. But I think that that what this whole kind of conversation focuses us on is that names matter. Right.
1: Absolutely. And the the interesting part, too, is that changing your name, changing what's name, is, is not the end of the story. And in fact, in the United States itself, name-changing was seen as something that was Jewish. And so one way that universities and companies discriminated against Jews was not only by trying to identify their names as Jewish, but by asking people if they had ever changed their names. Yeah, And usually name-changing was seen as a marker of Jewish identity. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see how the bureaucracy is really trying to assert who is Jewish based not only on their names, but on the changes in their names.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One kind of final thing that I think is just so interesting mm-hmm. And then I also think has really important ramifications for a whole range of issues. It goes back to something that you said at the beginning of your conversation with Kirsten, this idea that like, you know, this is really funny right? you can tell all these jokes about name changing, but this is like a really serious issue. I think that there are so many things that are happening around us that seem kind of funny, but are deadly serious.
1: I absolutely agree with you. And I think what's really fascinating about jokes is that they both obscure and highlight something about a particular community. So in this case, I think through jokes about name changing, American Jews have kind of rewritten their own history and the role that anti-Semitism has played in it. And here, really, I'm thinking about the Ellis Allen jokes and the notion that those, those name changes were imposed on Jews. Jokes are really revealing about American Jews' psyche because they really reflect their own anxiety about identity, about belonging to American society, and also about cultural transmission to the next generation's.
0: Thank you again so much for sharing this conversation with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Jason. It was a real
2: pleasure.